As people in Ukraine face a second week of Russian hostilities, we hear how UN humanitarians and rights bodies are doing as much as they can to help, from the aid workers on the ground in Lviv and beyond, to the Human Rights Council, which is holding an urgent debate in Geneva as we speak. Stay with us too for some tough testimony on the impact that the crisis is having on health workers, and also for always relevant commentary from my co-host, Solange Beatege-Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. An urgent debate on Ukraine began at the Human Rights Council in Geneva on Thursday, as UN Rights Chief Michel Bachelet led calls for a ceasefire, insisting that Russia's military attack had opened a new and dangerous chapter in world history. It's been a week since Russia's self-styled special military operation began, leading to heavy shelling of Ukrainian cities, Ms. Bachelet said. Military operations are escalating further as we speak, with military strikes on and near large cities including Chernihiv, Kharkiv, Kherson, Lysyshansk, Sivirodonetsk, Sumy, Mariupol and Shitomir, and the capital Kiev. The town of Volnovaya in Donetsk region has been almost completely destroyed by shelling and its remaining residents have been hiding in basements. The High Commissioner echoed others in saying that states must abide by international law and the core principles that protect human life and human dignity. The scale of suffering from the bombing and shelling in Ukraine knows no limits, the World Health Organization said on Wednesday, as the UN Health Agency strives to get life-saving supplies into the country. Initial concerns about a lack of medicines to treat chronic conditions, such as diabetes, have given way to an alert that people will die if they do not get oxygen and other supplies for emergency care, said Dr Mike Ryan, head of the World Health Organization's emergencies programme. You know, some of us have been in this game a long time and we've developed very thick skins, but when you see nurses mechanically ventilating infants in basements of hospitals, um, you know, even the, the toughest of us, we struggle to watch that. Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, told journalists that 36 tons of materials for trauma care and emergency surgery were on their way from a WHO hub in Dubai, enough to meet the needs of 1,000 patients. Additional health supplies will also be available for another 150,000 people, and prior to the conflict, the UN Health Agency had already distributed emergency supplies to 23 hospitals. But Tedros cautioned that these supplies in Kiev were currently inaccessible because of the growing insecurity. That development came as the International Criminal Court, or ICC, announced that it's to open a probe into possible war crimes in Ukraine. ICC prosecutor Karim Khan tweeted the decision on Wednesday evening, adding that his office would be looking for evidence for any past and present allegations of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide committed inside Ukraine. Although the country has accepted the jurisdiction of the ICC since 2013, Russia is not a member of the court. The ICC prosecutes individuals as opposed to the International Court of Justice, which resolves disputes between countries. The headlines there. So we've heard about growing international condemnation for Russia's military offensive in Ukraine. But what of all those trying to flee the violence? According to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, more than a million refugees have been created by this crisis. 
To find out what UN humanitarians are doing to help, I spoke to James Elder from the UN Children's Fund. He's in western Ukraine at the border with Poland, just inside the border, in fact, in Lviv. But first, let's hear from the UN Refugee Agency's Shabia Mantu, who we'll hear from now. Well, the latest is that we're seeing numbers escalate in terms of the people that are fleeing Ukraine, and they're going up exponentially every hour. I mean, um, in the past uh, few days, we've seen this increase by by, by tens of thousands. So, and um, they're fleeing to neighboring countries. Um, they're fleeing to mainly to Poland, to Hungary, Romania, Moldova, Slovakia, and other countries as well. But right now, the situation is that the borders are generally all open for people who, who are fleeing uh, Ukraine. Um, they're being received there, so national authorities are taking care of the reception arrangements, um, registering them, providing them with accommodation, transport. Local communities have also been unbelievable in the hospitality that they've extended. They're opening their hearts and their homes. Some of them are sheltering with families. Um, we've even had reports of, of private companies actually putting them up in, in hotels or, or other places, and they're providing hot tea, food. People are very exhausted. Some of them have been waiting up to 60 hours to across the border in difficult conditions. It's been freezing and um, temperatures have been difficult. Um, they've been exhausted. They've been exposed to very traumatic events as well. And so there are a lot of psychosocial needs and support that is required, but it's a fast moving situation and we expect more and more to continue to make that journey. Can you get to those communities that are being cut off or have been cut off with relief? Well, we're ready to provide aid and we are doing that wherever it's possible. At the moment, we're also preparing to deliver assistance to internally displaced people in Western Ukraine, where humanitarian access is easier. But we're also um, strengthening our nationwide hotlines as well, which provide critical information to people who are displaced and need that help. But yeah, the situation there, I mean, there are movement uh, restrictions, people are sheltering. Um, It's very hard for people there who are affected by conflict, but also the staff and humanitarian workers. And finally, Shabir Mantu from the UN Refugee Agency. We've been hearing disturbing reports of third country nationals and migrant workers within Ukraine not being able to join the exodus out of the country, not being able to join trains and and buses. What's the agency's response to this? We need more information about this, but we have been assured these are not state policies. We've seen the reports and the instances of where that's happened. Uh, we're aware of these reports and these facing uh, individuals, and we've raised them as a matter of urgency, brought them to attention, but we have been advocating for access to safety for all. But the assurances are that really these are not state policies, but at the same time, there should be no challenges for, for anyone to access the safety or differentiation of treatment for people who are trying to also receive safety and protection. So that's Shabia Mantu from the UN Refugee Agency. Now, James Elder speaking to me from inside Kiev near the Poland border at Lviv. Remains a sea of great sadness and stress, just thousands upon thousands of people fleeing, continual air raid sirens now, obviously escalation of fighting in all other parts of the country, another night of kids in bunkers, another night of you know parents under enormous stress. Um, we know children have been killed in this we know they've been injured and and we know that many many are being traumatized the only way for this to stop is for the conflict to stop and what are you seeing in terms of the human stories we understand that very few men leaving the country but how about the mothers and children and all the others it's gut gut gut-wrenching it's just dozen after dozen of just forced farewells i mean i've spoken to literally 
more than 100 people. Every one of them is pretty much the same. There is a father there, normally with them, farewelling them, sitting down, trying to explain to his eight-year-old son or 12-year-old daughter why dad's leaving, then a farewell between husband and wife, and then the, the tears and stress that follow. They may have been in a bunker the night before. They're probably on the road for two days. Train station here in Lviv for 12 hours. It's freezing. It's been snowing. They've had to make that final decision, as a woman said to me, Jay. She's a physiotherapist. No one wants to leave. She just said, James, I, I am at a point where every decision is so critical. I fear if I get one wrong, I will no longer be able to make them for my family. So her and her daughter had decided decided to leave. Uh, another young girl said she spent, she was seven, and she explained through her mum, who had good English, that there were rats in her bunker. But her mum had said, well, that's okay, there's no bombs. These are the conditions people are in. The level of stress and sadness is... You know, on par with, with any crisis that we keep having to face. Yeah, and of course, we've had reports from the UN Children's Fund Executive Director, Catherine Russell, reporting on hospitals, schools, water and sanitation facilities, even orphanages under fire. So the psychological stress must be dreadful. Well, exactly. The Executive Director spoke exactly to that, the reports of those key places, orphanages, schools, hospitals all under fire families are running out of places to go we've you know it's 500 600 now across the borders the support of everyday ukrainians has been immense i see women on the street on the roads you know cooking food for people i see 15 year old girls having baked and that's at least a, a bright moment uh, albeit the only ones you'll see when they tap on a window of a car to the sort of frozen family inside and offer them something something warm. I see people at train stations say, look, you've been here for 12 hours. Can I offer you a bed? You know, you're coughing. Do you need some medicine? Whatever it may be. So there's a huge amount of support. And I think we're seeing that in border countries too. But, but the demand is fast outstripping any type of supply. So what can UNICEF actually do on the ground? What's your mission today? What's the first thing you're doing right now? First and foremost, it's through support for those people at the border. We've got trucks arriving into Poland, emergency healthcare, emergency education. You've mentioned trauma several times. It's spot on. We know what can be done there. We have, you know, child protection teams on both sides of the conflict lines in the east. They're helping children who've, who've suffered abuse or violence. These are critical, critical elements and that, that life-saving humanitarian support that was UNICEF's focus in the East. We now try to spread that across the country. That's very difficult. We need humanitarian lines to stay open, but echoing the Secretary General, you know, first and foremost, as we massively ramp up the humanitarian response, we need the, uh, we need the fighting to stop. James Elder there from the UN Children's Fund amid air raid sirens and a human exodus in Ukraine. And before him, the UN refugee agency's Shabia Mantu right here in Geneva. To talk about this, let me turn to our regular guest, Solange Pertege Cotes, who's with me now. Hi, Sol. Hola, Daniel. These days we have seen with horror rockets raining down on Ukraine cities and hundreds of people killed or injured. In the words of Shabia Mantou from the UN Refugee Agency, there's also a fast-growing refugee emergency. Inspired by his own years of exile to unpack the anti-immigrant politics that still plague us today, Bertolt Brecht wrote Refugee Conversations. This is a dialogue between Ziffel and Kale, two refugees fleeing political violence. They meet at a train station cafe in Helsinki. In the process, the two learn to trust one another. And finally, on the last page 
they decide to do something together. In the dialogue by Brecht, the two ordinary men become extraordinary. And this is where the text optimism is to be found in its belief in change. James Elder from UNICEF was speaking to us from Ukraine. He said he saw grandmothers cooking food in the road, offering a bed to those at the train station. Teenage girls making cookies and knocking on car doors, offering them to people who've come and spent three days covering the 500 kilometers from Kiev. We need hope and optimism, Daniel. And at the same time, always keep in mind Brecht's phrase that resounds like thunder. War is like love. It always finds a way. Today, we have to start a global refugee conversation together and with equal solidarity without any discrimination based on gender, race, religion, or ethnicity. It seems obvious to say, but it is a story of human beings surviving in dark times with dignity. A refugee is a refugee regardless of his or her skin color. Thank you, Solange, and for your comments to Bertolt Brecht's Refugee Conversations. Uh, I can tell you, Solange read it in a flash, and you can do it too. Uh, just look for it online. Of course, the United Nations and the international community has Global Refugee and Migration or Migrant Compact. There are recommendations. There is a framework to incorporate the needs and hopes for uh, a better life that many migrants have and to give the shelter that refugees need. These systems exist. It's uh, about political will, as it is with most things. Thank you so much, Solange, for joining us today. I hope you'll be back with us next week. You two listeners, we will, I hope, be giving some more optimistic news on Ukraine, but we'll see, of course. We will, I guarantee you, be able to give you the very latest from the United Nations. Thank you for joining us on this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Until next week, bye-bye for now. Ciao, Daniel. Mm-hmm.